Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of The Negotiation, and on today's show we talk with Barbara Finnamore, author of Will China Save the Planet and founder and senior strategic director Asia at the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC. Obviously, this show was all about pollution in China, but that's where the obvious stops. We do take a walk down memory lane of how China got to where they are today, but we also discuss China's massive investments in clean tech, wind power, solar power, and electric vehicles as well, all huge investments that dwarf the rest of the world, innovations that the rest of the world would likely and gladly adopt en masse as soon as possible. I asked Barbara's opinion on local concern levels around pollution in China and whether these concerns change as we go up the demographic scale, and we talk about whether Chinese local citizens conflate or are able to separate conditions like smog from fog. We also discuss how informed and motivated the general populace is around hot topics such as pollution and climate change. Barbara has been squarely positioned at the center of the energy sector in China for 30 years and was a fascinating interviewee on these topics and more, most of which are front and center amongst foreigners when thinking about China. Enjoy. China has invested over $760 billion in renewable energy over the last decade. That's more than twice as much as the next largest investor, wow. the United States. They've invested over $60 billion in electric vehicles. That's 10 times as much as the United States. And what they've done is brought down the cost of solar by some 90% over the last decade and 87% for wind. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market no globally minded brand should ignore, but entering markets like China is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. Times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success expanding into the markets of the Middle Kingdom. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies enter the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful China entry and growth strategies by interviewing the people behind those success stories. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation, brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Barbara, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Let's start off by talking a little bit about your background, how you became involved with China, and how you ended up doing so much work in China. Well, Todd, I started my career as an environmental litigator for the Natural Resources Defense Council. And I probably would still be doing that work today, except that I met, met and married a U.S. diplomat in the mid-80s. And he's the one who took me to China in 1990. And it was an incredible time for China's awakening to the idea that sustainable development was actually in its own interest. And I happened to have a front row seat working for the UN Development when China signed the Framework Convention on, Ch on Climate Change and did the very first sustainable development blueprint of any country in the world. It's Agenda 21 for the 21st century, and I was, I was a part of that, and I got hooked. I got hooked on the challenges that China faced and getting to know 
the people who were working to address those challenges, many of whom became leaders in China's energy and climate policy. So ever since that time, I've been involved in China. I began uh, NRDC's China program in the mid-90s. That was the first energy program launched by an international nonprofit NGO. And we now have about 50 people in our Beijing office working every day to help move China onto a more sustainable, low-carbon development path. I don't think it's any secret that China has struggled with pollution issues and climate change. Can we talk a little bit about when those issues may have started and when did the government recognize that it was a problem? Well, you can go back a long time in any country to really examine the roots of when its environmental problems began. But I would say that China's environmental problems really took off when its economy began to take off in 2001, after it joined the WTO. And in that decade, which has been called China's economic miracle, it it quadrupled its GDP, it, it quintupled its uh, exports, and this was all powered by coal, the world's dirtiest fossil fuel, the leading source of of CO2 emissions in the world, and also the leading source of China's devastating air pollution. So that decade is is really when China took over as with the dubious honor of being the world's leading emitter of CO2. Um, and during the by the end of that decade, China realized that its economic development model, the way in which it was achieving these wonderful uh, economic results was unbalanced, uncoordinated, and most definitely unsustainable. It was powered by smokestack industries and exports, and it was leaving a trail of environmental devastation in its wake. And that began to get so bad that by 2013, the year that many people call the year of the air apocalypse, uh, breathing the air in, in Beijing and other northern cities was like living in an airport smoking lounge. And it was as if every man, woman, and child in China was smoking 1.5 cigarettes every hour. So it got so bad um, that China began to realize that it had to do something to cut its air pollution because it was causing so much concern among the populace and so many premature deaths. And it launched uh, its air pollution control plan, which for the very first time tackled coal, the biggest problem. And that's when the change started to take place. One and a half cigarettes per hour. That's an incredible statistic, uh, and I think it will help our listeners put it into perspective of just what it was like around 2013 when there was the, as you put it, the air apocalypse. I'm curious to know your thoughts on how we should be regarding China and their use of coal or other fossil fuels and the damage, knowing the damage that it does to the environment, because I've had some some guests before 
talk about the fact that China is just trying to catch up and we shouldn't lay all the environmental blame of where we're at today on China for their contributions, given that other developed countries also used similar methods, similar damaging, environmentally damaging methods to achieve the economic success that they have and enjoy today. That they should, that China should also be given a bit of a pass on some of this because they're just simply trying to catch up and they didn't do all the damage. They're more the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. What are your thoughts on this? I don't think we need to give China a pass because the situation is so different now than when many Western countries began to develop. There weren't other alternatives to coal and to oil and gas for a country that wished to power its economy. And now in large part, because of what China has done, it's the largest producer, consumer, and investor in renewable energy. The cost of these clean energy sources has plummeted in the last decade. So China no longer needs to rely on coal to continue its economic growth. And in fact, it's more expensive for them to, at this point, and for two-thirds of the world's population, it's more expensive now to build new coal plants than to build new solar or wind plants. And energy efficiency is what I call the cheapest, cleanest, and fastest source of energy. It's the megawatt, the energy you don't use. To the extent that China invests in energy efficiency, it puts it in an even better economic position because it saves money. It makes its industries more competitive. It produces more jobs. So there's really the argument that China should be allowed to pollute first and clean up later just doesn't make any sense for its own economy right now. I'd like to stop for a second and take the pulse of the average Chinese citizen, if you wouldn't mind commenting on that from your knowledge and and your work in that space, and compare it to the Western uh, opinion as well. Are Chinese locals concerned about the environment, uh, the levels of pollution that, that China emits? Do they have all the information? Is this something that they're worried about? And is it at the level above or below Uh, that of Western countries and their citizens when it comes to pollution and climate change in general? Chinese citizens are concerned about climate change, uh, just like everybody else, um, particularly since China is one of the countries that's most vulnerable to the impacts of climate change. In fact, a recent study indicated that People in coastal cities in China are three times as more uh, vulnerable to the impacts of rising sea levels than was originally thought. And that broad stretches of Shanghai, for example, uh, may very well be underwater by 2050. Climate change in China also leads to increased food and water insecurity and extreme weather events. But I would have to say that citizens in China have a lot of concerns that rank higher than climate change right now. Things like air pollution, which is continuing to be a problem in China, 
mm-hmm. um, water pollution, loss of biodiversity, and of course, economic insecurity now uh, as a result of China's economic, slow economic downturn exacerbated, exacerbated by the um, COVID-19 virus and the U.S.-China trade war. So another interesting difference between citizens in China and the U.S. is that according to a recent survey, Chinese citizens largely believe that it's the government's job to respond to climate change rather than individual citizens. They, they trust the government to a large extent to take the actions necessary to tackle climate change. Although Chinese citizens are also willing to pay more for goods and services if that would help reduce their carbon footprint. Are there noticeable changes in concern amongst the different demographics in China? Are seniors more concerned, perhaps feeling that they are more at risk than the young? I think the biggest difference that you'll see in China in terms of people's concern about climate change is really between the urban and rural areas, the highly developed um, urban areas, which are some of those cities in China are among the most economically developed in the world, and a large part of the rest of China, where people are still struggling to make ends meet and are subject to some really daily concerns about their livelihood being threatened by pollution, for example, um, as well as the virus and the economic downturn. So to me, I see a greater concern for things like climate change among people who have a higher standard of living and they can afford to be more concerned, to afford to be more informed about the impacts of climate change. Um, And there are so many experts in China who are very concerned about climate change and who are advising the government to take even stronger actions. You know, many people think that China is monolithic, that the government makes its decisions somewhere in a back room and then everybody Mm -hmm. has to comply. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's it's so much more complex and, and rich than people think. And there are champions for clean energy and for cutting China's reliance on coal and for stepping up its ambitions under the Paris Climate Agreement. And these are the ones now fighting with the vested interests, the fossil fuel companies, local governments whose uh, careers have been built on the fossil fuel industry, for example. There's heated debates going on in China right now about what should be in the next five-year plan, the 14th five-year plan, which is going to make a huge difference on the future of China's low-carbon transition. And similarly, a heated debate is going on right now as to what sort of stimulus China should put in place to begin its economic recovery. And those decisions that we're, you know, waiting for right now are going to make all the difference. A recent report came out showing that pollution levels in China had now exceeded pre-COVID levels. 
I'm curious to know, did COVID have any impact on the energy sector, on the environmental sector? Can we expect some, maybe not just temporary, but some permanent changes that were the result of COVID? Or is it just business as usual and we're just going forward as is? It's not business as usual in China, and nor is it in any other country. So many changes have taken place since the advent of the COVID-19 virus. One, one interesting change is that Chinese citizens are less willing to take public transit, for example, because of the crowding. So we're seeing and less willing even to take shared ride vehicles. Um, which were going at a head at a tremendous rate before the virus. So we're seeing greater interest in, in private vehicles, which in the long term is not good for, uh, for pollution, for climate change. Um, we're also seeing that the government has continued its strong interest in electric vehicles as uh, essential to its long term uh, industrial transformation. But in the short term, they are taking steps to or consider easing its environmental uh, controls on the gasoline-powered engines, because the auto industry as a whole is a pillar industry of China. It's responsible for some 10% of jobs and nearly 10% of all retail sales in China. Wow. Okay. So, so that's, um, leading to a jump in, um, in sales of the traditional, uh, internal combustion engine cars. And, 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 and salespeople are, are cutting deals for polluting cars and, and kind of trying to unload them before these new environmental standards come into play. So those are the kind of things we're seeing. Same thing for um, iron, steel, cement, heavy industry. There is uh, a lot of concern by environmentalists in China that the government is also re uh, relaxing some of its pollution controls on the smokestack industries, just as a way of getting their economy on its feet. Um, but the good news is we are not seeing the kind of large-scale stimulus um, support for infrastructure development, traditional infrastructure development in China that we saw after the 2008 global uh, financial crisis. Instead, what China's focusing on now, it's so interesting, is what they call new infrastructure, new uh, connected innovative um, transportation, connected, innovative energy, things like electric vehicle charging stations. China's stimulus payments are going to allow the state grid company to build some 78,000 new electric vehicle charging stations around the country. That's, that's about how much exists in the United States today. Also building new uh, ultra high voltage transmission lines. Uh, China just announced the very first ultra high voltage transmission line in the world that will solely be dedicated to transmitting renewable energy. 
So, mm. you know, other things like 5G, artificial intelligence, everything connected to the fourth industrial revolution is what China wants to push as the new infrastructure stimulus um, that will bring it, its economy back. China has publicly announced their intention to take a bit of a leadership role around tackling the issue of climate change several times over the past few years, both during the Obama administration and during the current Trump administration. Have they been able to achieve said tackling and have they succeeded in any measurable way over the last 10 years or so? So in the Paris Agreement, China agreed to do several things. One was to uh, peak its CO2 emissions by 2030 and to make efforts to peak it earlier. Um, there were interim goals such as reducing its carbon intensity, the amount of CO2 emitted by uh, per unit of GDP by uh, 2020. And China is, I think, close to reaching that goal of carbon intensity. Um, Depending on how the stimulus payments go, if it continues along this new infrastructure path, it should have no problem. If it continues to promote reductions in its energy efficiency, it should have no problem as well. But if it continues to to build um, and approve new coal-fired power plants, these could be in jeopardy. But the uh, one thing that is uh, heartening here is something that my organization worked on um, in the current five-year plan, the 13th five-year plan. We collaborated with a group of 20 key research institutes and universities and industry associations in China and together put forward a package of uh, proposals that would enable China to set a mandatory cap on coal consumption in the current five-year plan. That's a percentage of coal in China's energy mix. And we are seeing steady reduction in the percentage of coal in the energy mix, such that they are going to meet that mandatory target. It's under uh, 58% right now. And I'm remembering the days when, when coal was 70% of China's energy mix and over 80% of its electricity. So China is steadily reducing the percentage of coal and steadily increasing the amount of solar and wind. In fact, even during the first quarter of this year with the, uh, with the pandemic, wind and solar increased its percentage in the energy mix to over 10% while coal continued to drop. So yes, we are seeing change. Um, the question in my mind is, is it fast enough to avoid the worst impacts of climate change globally? And that is also true for every country. Every country needs to step up its climate ambitions. Thank you for that, Barbara. As you and I had been talking about before the show, and I think we can hear now, you actually have your lawn crew outside your window doing your property and you've been waiting for them for about a week and so you know it's just interesting to note because such is life and such is work life from home this new normal that we're all in and this is the kind of stuff that happens and inevitably it will end up on our podcast as it has now so that's the way things go we're going to try to post-produce 
this and remove some of that background noise as much as possible. So bear with us and hopefully it won't be too bad and hopefully they will finish that area right in front of your office as we continue. Speaking of continuing, a lot of China watchers have said that most of the commitments that they've made are all talk and they're not actually reducing their emissions. What side of that conversation do you fall on? Have they done an admirable job given the conditions they've had to deal with, or do they still have some room to grow with regards to continuing to combat pollution-producing activities? As you know, Todd, from having spent so many years in China yourself, everything in China can be explained by the principles of yin and yang. Both are true. You have to be able to hold two contradictory ideas in your mind at the same time. And the fact of the matter is that China is still the largest emitter of CO2 emissions in the world. It's true that China burns about half of the world's coal and that reigning in coal is key to the future of our planet. So when you see China approving as many coal plants in the first quarter of this year as they did in all of 2019, it is a cause for concern. Um, On the other hand, it's important to recognize that 40% of those coal plants are losing money uh, because there's massive overcapacity. And... On average, coal plants in China only operate about half of the time. There are just too many of them. We expect that to continue when power sector reforms continue and and the guaranteed price and operating hours that coal plants historically enjoyed are, are going away. They are facing increased competition from coal, from, from wind and solar. Uh, We're actually at the point right now where building building new wind and solar plants is almost cheaper than continuing to run existing coal plants. So we think it's a massive waste of money for China to continue to approve these new coal plants when we doubt that most of them will ever operate for their full full, uh, operating life. And at the same time, you say, what has China done? It's not just words. China has invested over $760 billion in renewable energy over the last decade. That's more than twice as much as the next largest investor, the United States. They've invested over $60 billion in electric vehicles. That's 10 times as much as the United States. And what they've done is brought down the cost of solar by some 90% over the last decade and 87% for wind. And the cost of battery storage is also dropping precipitously. Just in the last two years, it dropped another 50%. So what China is doing is enabling this low carbon revolution for any country in the world. So it's more. It's more than just its its Paris climate ambitions. We have to look on the ground and and, and see what happens. There's a some people concerned that because of the economic downturn, China won't meet its goal of selling two million more electric vehicles this year. Mm-hmm. And that it may only sell one point one million. 
Well, that's as many electric vehicles that are as are on the road in the United States today. We cannot uh, discount the enormous, enormous um, difference that China has made. It's heavy uh, investment in infrastructure, in subsidies, in pro-government procurement, and in R&D, in innovation. It's gotten so their subsidies were so high that it's also led to massive overcapacity mm. in the wind and solar and electric vehicle sectors. So China's now at the point where it's trying to wean these clean energy sectors off subsidies and enable them to compete on their own merits. So what we've got is a situation, I think, where these clean energy technologies are still a small percentage of the overall energy sector in China, of the overall transportation sector in China, but they are poised to take off. And I have to say, I was intrigued by a uh, uh, analogy made by the head of uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance about too long ago. And he said, waiting for these new energy technologies to take off is like waiting for a sneeze. The first few minutes, seem to take forever, and you think it will never happen. And then, boom, you're, you're off and running, and it's going to uh, expand at an exponential rate in the very near future. Obviously, China has had smog and pollution issues over the past half century. Do the average Chinese citizens conflate smog and pollution with climate change? Do they look at them equally and can they discern between the two accurately? Do they even have access to the right information to do so? It wasn't too long ago that I remember walking out on the street with uh, Chinese friends and having them say, oh my goodness, what a foggy day when it was in fact smog, but they had no way of measuring it until the year of the air apocalypse, when the government started revealing hourly air quality uh, results for all of its major cities. And once people were armed with that knowledge, and they still can get that information on their smartphones with, uh, with apps that will show the hourly uh, source of different types of pollution in any, in any major city in China. This information is very powerful. People in China all know the meaning of the word PM 2.5, which is the most dangerous type of pollution with the smallest diameter that can get lodged in your lungs and cause serious impact. Most people I talk to here in the United States have no idea what PM 2.5 is. So what we're starting to see is people acting and asking for greater action on pollution. Climate change is difficult to see. It's difficult to measure. It's difficult to connect these extreme weather events that we're seeing more and more often with climate change. Um, That's true everywhere. It's the, and, and I have people here in the U.S. say, but, oh, it was a cold winter. How? How can there be climate change uh, when it's really the trends uh, that are so alarming? When you look at 
this last month being the hottest on record, this last year being the hottest on record, this last decade being the hottest on record. That's very different than pollution. I think people in China, especially the folks, as I said before, who are more well-off, more educated, they have access to information about climate change. And what they don't have that I've noticed is what I see in the newspapers often in the U.S., which is trying to show two sides of the story of having uh, somebody who's a climate change scientist on a program, a podcast, say, with a climate change denier and trying to show that there's two sides of the story when the, you know, 99% of the world's climate scientists are unanimous that climate change is real, that it is caused by human activity, and that we are nearing the tipping point. So I think what we have is is the state-owned media doesn't feel the need to show both sides, supposedly both sides of the climate story, in order to sell newspapers. And so as a result, I think people get a clearer picture of exactly what we're facing right now. Your book... And the title of your book is something that we have to talk about. The title is quite, shall we say, triggering. It's very clickbaity in nature. And I think perhaps by design, it is going to create a lot of commentary because it is called Will China Save the Planet? Please tell us about the book and please explain the title choice. <laughs> yes. Um, I was asked to write this book by a publisher in London who was producing a series of books on environmental futures. And so they asked me to write about China and climate change. Uh, it's a small book. It's very readable. Uh, I've got a lot of positive remarks at, uh, from readers about how I have packed a tremendous amount of information into just 100 pages or so in a way that's readable and talks about my experience over the years and the various uh, climate and clean energy champions that I've met along the way, uh, because I was pretty much the first environmentalist working on clean energy in China. So I have a different, you know, long-term perspective than most people. Oh, absolutely. But you, but you ask about the title, and it, and and that's so <laughs> interesting <laughs> because I was given that title by the publisher. Oh. Every book in their series uh, is, has a provocative question title. And I questioned the title myself because I said, well, people who read that don't, you know, necessarily know that it's about climate change uh, rather than just, you know, uh, national security or nuclear nonproliferation or environmental degradation. And they said, just this is it. This is the title, and uh, you'll have to explain all that in the context of the book itself. So that's how it came about. Well, then let me ask you, will China save the planet? You know, I believe that China is at a crossroads right now. It's never been more uh, important how China responds to the challenges it faces right now, which have come up in to a large extent since I wrote the book, although the roots of many of those problems I explain 
how they came about, the challenges that China faces, uh, still very much the same. And China's evolution, I chart through the years. Um, however, as I said before, given that China, um, China's economy, uh, was in negative territory, uh, last year for the first time in decades is, is posing a challenge. Um, but I think it's also an opportunity. China can choose not to use the tools that worked in the past, uh, to come out of this economic hole. It can use this opportunity to push forward that economic transition that it says it wants to slower but higher quality growth, focused on innovation, focused on services, focused on clean energy. China can choose in its 14-5-year plan to double down on its restrictions on coal, to make that transition to cheaper renewable energy. If it does so, given, given the remarkable advances it's already made in electrification, in renewable energy, it can lead the way, not just for reducing its own emissions, but for enabling these clean energy technologies to be affordable for the rest of the world. But we're at a crossroads right now, so I cannot foresee the future <laughs> any more than anyone else. But I'm watching it closely, and my colleagues in Beijing have put together a series of recommendations on how China can reduce its reliance on coal and an orderly phase-out of its coal economy, of how China can ensure a just transition for workers in the fossil fuel industry, how China can bring its economy back through a green stimulus. And we are getting a good response from the Chinese government. They want numbers. They want to know not just uh, why they should go green, but how and what's going to be the impact on their bottom line. And groups like mine are being able to perform that role. And I hope we can make a difference, continue to make a difference. That is Barbara Finnemore, everybody. Her book is Will China Save the Planet? And it can be purchased on Amazon or at Wiley Publishers' website, www.wiley.com. And you can find more information about her organization, the National Resources Defense Council at nrdc.org. And you can click through to their China program there. Her email address for anyone who'd like to get in touch with Barbara is bfinnemore at nrdc.org. Barbara, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for having me, Tom. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking across the pond for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope that you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands just like yours enter China. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Zai Jing.